it's funny. We're very concerned with authenticity in the culture, and it's like you can fake things until they're authentic. It's like there's some core of reality that who you are. You can't seem to change it. It's something you're born with, or nature or nurture, I'm not sure. But you can certainly layer stuff on top of that. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks with Seth, the artist behind the book series Palookaville, about why his generation of cartoonists broke away from fantasy. We all came from that world of reading like Marvel Comics or DC Comics or whatever, and we all wanted to get away from that. And the most obvious thing to get away from that was real life. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors. I love music. I love listening to music and entertaining with music and singing along with music. And I love music playing all through my house. Even before Sonos asked if I'd be interested in partnering with them, I had a Sonos system in my home. I chose Sonos because the acoustics are breathtaking and the design is world-class. Speaking from years of experience, everything about setting up a Sonos system is easy and intuitive. All you need to do is plug in a speaker and open the Sonos app. I can control the sound through my app, through Apple AirPlay 2, or my favorite, with my voice. And the sound? Well, the sound is glorious. Sonos works with experts in acoustics and engineering, then collaborates with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an unprecedented, state-of-the-art listening experience. Sonos also uses a remarkable technology called TruePlay, to ensure that Beyonce sounds like Beyonce and Kendrick sounds like Kendrick and Radiohead sounds like Radiohead. I am so thrilled Sonos is partnering with me here on Design Matters. If you want to know more about the best sound system in the world, please go to Sonos.com to learn more. Support for Design Matters is also provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects. You even have serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Comics have such a simple little bag of tricks. Some tiny drawings in boxes, a few words contained in a bubble, a handful of rough-hewn symbols, almost nothing to it. But the closer you look, the more you come to appreciate their almost endless possibilities. That was written by a Canadian cartoonist who has been exploring those endless possibilities for decades in his graphic novels, his art, and his design. His pen name is Seth, and you could say he's a cartoonist's cartoonist, because when you mention his name to fellow practitioners of the art, they swoon. In fact, he's here today because one of his superfans, the legendary Chip Kidd, made sure I had him on the show. Seth, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. I didn't know Chip recommended me. That's nice of him. Oh, yes, absolutely. So I understand that you were born Gregory Gallant Mm in 1962 in Clinton, Ontario. Could you remember a time before you could draw? Well, that's a kind of a tricky question because I don't remember a time before I could draw, but I do remember my first, not maybe not my first drawing, but there is one that's imprinted in my mind. When I was very young, I remember, and this may be imprinted later. I, uh, oh, we'll talk I, yeah, about memory, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But on the bottom of the coffee table in our living room, I drew a little man, and that was there for many years, and that was drawn very early, and I, even the pen I drew it in was jammed in 
like in where the leg meets the top. So, you know, even as a small child, I can remember lying under the table and looking at that drawing for many years. I don't remember drawing it, but that's very early. I was starting to draw. I mean, I could draw that drawing right now if I had to. I remember it very well. And it was a little man? A little man who had a nose on the side of his head and two eyes on the front. One arm from the shoulder and one from, I guess, the middle of the torso. Very impressionist. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Did anybody in your family know it was there? Well, I imagine my mother must have known it was there, although I can't remember having a conversation about it of any sort. But that coffee table was there certainly until I left home at 18. So, And we moved every year, so somebody was turning that coffee table over. I wonder where it is now. Well, that's a good question, and don't get me depressed because I'm always wondering where old objects have gone. You and me both. Seth, you were the youngest child in a large family, and Mm -hmm. your siblings were gone by the time you came around. And as you've said, I grew up in a house that was filled with the remnants of an earlier family. My house was filled with photos of people and a life that was lived before me. That quality of lingering things from the past is one of the most essential elements of what my work's about. Seth, did you ever long to have lived in that other family? Actually, no. It's funny. Um, My family had a slightly complicated history in that um, my parents had a terrible marriage. So they really disliked each other. And my mother had mental issues, which came up around the time I was born. So it was very distinctly two different eras. The eras of my brothers and sisters who grew up together was a volatile period with a lot of fighting between the parents And then in my period, it was a very strange um, insular world with me and my mother. My father wasn't around so much during that time, and he he had some issues, so I wasn't that unhappy when he wasn't around. So it was a very quiet kind of world that I shared with my mother, and that meant I certainly was not longing for the more volatile times that I didn't know fully about at that age, but later I started to clue in. As for your home life, the Montreal Gazette wrote this about you. Uh, His dad would terrorize him and his mom, and he, as always, looking for love on the home front in vain. And Seth, you've spoken before about your dad's temper Mm -hmm. and how you'd lay in your room with your transistor radio in your ear, trying to drown out your parents' fighting, and how horrible the sound is of adults' anger. Mm -hmm. It really stayed with me, that line. Did this in any way cause you to reflect more deeply on the kind of life you really wanted? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm not sure that you make those kind of decisions when you're young or even when you're a young adult. When things happen to you in life, you develop like sort of um, defense mechanisms. So certainly I think I spent much of my uh, young adult life in a kind of love-seeking mode and also in a kind of people-pleasing mode, even though, you know... If I were to be honest, and we talked a long time about this, there was plenty of unpleasant behavior from me as well. And it doesn't sound like I was stepping out into the world to, like, you know, to, to please everyone, and I certainly wasn't. But that said, I sense in myself from that period I have a very strong sort of fear of authoritarian behavior. And I do tend to try to, I'm one of those people who when I see trouble coming, I'm trying to put a damper on it constantly. I do think that eventually did lead me into a kind of life I'm in now, which is rather away from the world and controllable. And um, I don't think I planned that out. Now that I'm in my 50s, I talk to other people in my 50s, especially in the creative world. And I'm like, say to like a musician, now that you're 50, do you like all this touring around? Or was that a decision you made when you were 20 and maybe (laughs) hasn't panned out? I feel like the decisions I made when I was in my 20s that have led to this kind of isolated studio life actually were like the best decisions I could have made, but they're not decisions I would have made if I'd known that then. Then I would have been much more eager to have worked with people, to be out in a social kind of reality. Now it's like I just think some weird circumstance occurred that it turned out right. When you say that you feel that your world is more controllable, in what way? Well, I spend most of my time alone or with my wife. I live in the city of Guelph. I lived in Toronto for 20 years, and when I moved to Guelph, I didn't know anyone there, and and then I met my wife there. And it is a pretty small world I have. So I spend either my time in the studio, which is a lot of time each day, and the time when I'm not in the studios with her. Occasionally we see other people. We're not entirely on a desert island, but 
there is a certain quality that feels like it's a small world, and that world has parameters to it that I'm very comfortable with. In the documentary that was made about you, a film called Seth's Dominion by Luke Chamberland, you described how to get your mom's attention. You'd wet your cheeks with spit and run inside your house after school and tell her people had been picking on you. (laughs) It's embarrassing to hear this stuff mentioned aloud, but it's certainly true. That's a memory very clear in my mind. I think I remember it because of the calculation of it, even as like a six-year-old or however young, maybe even a five-year-old, that when I was doing that, I was very aware of like, you know, that it was a little pathetic. But the interesting thing is all this talk about my parents were doing right now is it, everything's complicated. Both my mother and my father, if I were to just like describe them in certain terms, sounds quite damning. And yet I love them both incredibly and deeply, and I miss them both. And yet my father's anger was really like um, he did terrorize us. And my mother, because of her mental problems and, and the institutionalization she'd went under, was, you know, very cold. And yet I never doubted either of them loved me. And as a child, I was exactly the kind of child who didn't feel... I wasn't a neurotic child in that sense, although the story was pretending to cry certainly sounds a little neurotic. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's that's very human. It's interesting because you've said that your childhood was this complex time period, yet you think about it constantly Mm -hmm. and think about it with pleasure, even the unpleasant stuff. Do you think that's synthesized happiness? Do you think that you've gotten over a lot of it? Tell me about what is pleasant about the thinking. Well, one is I certainly have gotten over a lot of it. I literally have said, like, everyone's forgiven, including me. And the funny thing about it is is that, um, yes, I would not want to be a child again under any circumstances, or a teenager, or anything in the past. I'm the happiest I've ever been now. That said, there's something about childhood that allows you to partition off the different areas of experience. And I'm certainly not going back and revisiting in my mind the the bad stuff. I'm thinking mostly about the good stuff. And a lot of the good stuff is kind of like this little world of a bubble that I remember living in with my mother, that strange world of because my, my parents had no friends and no one ever visited us and we um, were constantly moving. The family joke was someone was, must have been chasing my father because we moved every year. Why did you move so often? I have no idea. He was just uncomfortable. He was always dissatisfied with everything. So, And usually what that leads to is you move down in the world. You're not moving up. So everywhere you move is a little worse, not always in a direct arc. But certainly all your possessions get wrecked when you're moving every year. And there was a certain kind of increasing shabbiness in our life that I've been trying to avoid now. But the funny thing was about all this was that funny little world of just me and mother in these kind of places that was kind of quiet, a lot of television, has like ingrained a kind of a bubble experience for me that I try to recreate when I'm working. I like to be in that sort of sweet spot that's kind of separate from the world. It's, uh, in retrospect, it was kind of depressing, except that I don't see it that way. I think of it in a very romanticized way. I want to talk a little bit about some of your early comic influences. I believe that you've been a fan of Charles Schultz's work for about as long as you can remember. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, he would be the first artist I even recognized as an artist. We came from a very blue-collar background, so I wouldn't say there was a lot of art in my life as a young child. The three places where I saw art, you know, with the small a, would be like the newspaper, the television, the newsstand, maybe the library. And in those places, like um, cartoons, your child, they speak to you. And Schultz was different than the other strips on the page. Besides the fact that it was a much better strip than everything on the page, something about it made me look to see who did it. That was the first time I think I ever actually like thought about somebody who made something that I liked. I mean, this would be very, very young, like six years old or something. I certainly wouldn't have stopped to read the credits at the end of a TV show and think about who the producer was. But with, for the, I remember looking in the last panel and thinking to myself, Schultz, who is this German man who's drawing peanuts? It seems strange to me. It's because all I could think of was Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's Heroes. But the funny thing is, that's the moment where I first thought to myself, somebody does this. Now, I don't think at that moment I decided to become a cartoonist, but that was the beginning of the process of recognizing that these things were created by people. Who was your favorite Peanuts character? Well, it would be Linus, for sure. Really? Yeah. 
I used to have two very close cartooning friends, Chester Brown and Joe Matt, and we would always do this thing because we were a really tight little trio. Oh, the we, Toronto Three. That's right. And we would do this thing where we'd say, like, in this grouping of characters, who's who? So it'd be like, you know, it'd be like, if it's Star Trek, who's Captain Kirk, who's Mr. Spock, whatever. Who were you? Oh, I was uh, certainly Captain Kirk. And Chester, who was this much smarter, more logical person, was, uh, of course, Mr. Spock. And Joe, who was irrational, was Bones McCoy. So we would do this with everything, the Universal Monsters, whatever. But with Peanuts, what was interesting about it is it was like when asked who you'd think you were and who you were, I said I was Linus. And they said, no, you're Lucy. <gasps> oh, how fabulous. Yes. Yeah, so, and it was true because I was, I was certainly the aggressive... Football stealing. Yes, and and very like in our relationship, which was very determined by our the way we dealt with each other. I was the mean one, so but I thought of myself as a sensitive one. But maybe that's the story of everybody's life. I know you used to draw your own peanut strips and distribute mm-hmm. them at school. When did you start drawing comics, like real comics? I would say it'd be about grade seven or something. I wish I still had them because that was the literal period where you just made stuff up, like you could draw. 50-page comic in a night because you weren't worried about what it looked like. You were just making it up panel by panel. I can still remember a very long space opera I wrote where it just was the kind of thing where every two or three pages the spaceship the guy was in blew up and then you'd just have to figure out where he was going in the next panel. And you just just went on and on and on and on. And was that Cosmic Comics? Nope. No, this is way before that. Oh, okay. But when I did, you know, the funny thing is anytime you read, like, kids' comics, like at that age where they just make stuff up, it's so great because it's just pure imagination. Yeah. And it's very silly, usually. Well, you eventually established your own Cosmic Comics line as a kid. Um, you were drawing using mimeograph paper from your dad, yeah. I believe. And yeah. you drew hundreds and hundreds of pages of comics from the time you were very young all the way through Mm -hmm. to art school. And you never really showed them to other kids. And you only shared them with your mom, whose support you you needed Mm -hmm. and wanted. Why did you keep them so private? Well, you know, it was a very different world in the mid-'70s than it is now. We're contemporaries, by the way. Actually, I'm a little bit older than you are. Oh, okay. And where were you from? I'm a native New Yorker. Oh, okay. And I was born in Brooklyn, but (laughs) sort of raised on Long Island. Well, I was a small town hick, you know, with straw in my hair. So that little world I lived in where our town was like, I think, four to 5,000 people or something. And, you know, in grade school, like we moved there, I think, in grade four or something. So you arrive and then within a very quick time, people have you pegged who you are. And then it's very hard to change that. So by the time I got to high school... I was not the most popular kid in school. Let's put it that way. I've read. Yeah. <laughs> and I and comic books, I mean, I don't know that comic books were forbidden, as you know, as you got older, but I just sensed that, like, reading comic books wasn't going to make me more popular. So I thought, I will keep this to myself. And I was pretty worried that people would find out I was reading comic books because I thought, you know, infantile, you know, these are for kids. I think right now it's very, very different. You won't meet any 17-year-old who'd be like as ashamed of reading a superhero comic book as I was back then. But I was very, very careful not to like be caught buying them or any of that. So no you talking kept your about drawing them. them a secret. You kept Absolutely. reading and buying them a secret. Yeah. That must have been an incredibly large burden to be carrying around considering how important it was to you. Well, I didn't think of it in those terms. I just thought like it was a huge inner world for me. And in retrospect, I think that was good too because there was something about building that inner world alone that made it mean more to me now. So it wasn't just a hobby and it wasn't just uh, something, you know, I was talking to other kids about. It was like an actual fantasy world to escape to. When you get home from high school, I immediately dive into those comics and draw them all night. When I look back on that experience, it was the process of putting it down on paper that was like a way to actually enter into that world and for it to be satisfying and real in some way. You know the folk artist Henry Darger? Of course. What always strikes me about Darger, more than the work itself, is like that that inner reality he had that he had to have to survive, so lonely, so desperate, that he sat down and wrote, you know, I think the novel is like 10,000 or 50,000 pages. He just wrote every night. You know he never reread or edited or anything, just another another 10 pages, another 20 pages every night, because that was his way to enter somewhere where he wasn't alone. I think of that as the true therapeutic nature of creating an inner world. It literally is a place to go to. But you have to do something to get there. You have to make it. Yeah, you have to make it. You can't just fantasize it. As your family was relocating, it gave you an opportunity 
for reinvention. And I know that when you moved to a bigger city, you were looking to leave your old self behind. Absolutely. Which old self? Well, the teenage boy who was anxious and unsatisfied with who he was. And I felt awkward, you know, uh, like every teenager, I suppose. But it felt very heightened to me. I was was very nervous as a teenager. And um, it's funny, you know, those small towns, it's like you get an idea in your head of who you are. It gets reinforced by everyone. And you you don't, you know, if I'd stayed there, I don't know what would have become of me. It was going away to the big city of Toronto that allowed me to say, like, I can be a new person. And you became a punk. I did. Not instantly. Within a, within a year. And you took on the complete punk persona. You had yes. spiky clothes, chains, the whole costume. You had the crazy hair. You oh, had yeah. facial hair. Um, now here you are sitting with me, <laughs> looking very mid-century modern. Uh, you, you're wearing a very dapper suit. Thank you. Uh, you came in wearing a fedora and holding a briefcase. Talk a little bit about what you wear and how you represent yourself and the whole notion of crafting a persona. This was the great value of the punk movement for me, is that it took uh, what was an unformed idea of recreating myself and gave me an opportunity to find a group of people who were also engaged in that. And there was a kind of a, a collective encouragement to stake your own ground, to be, you say, I'm going to be a particular person. And this is, you know, I mean, there was certainly rules to punk. I mean, you had... There are rules to everything, yeah, even exactly. mid-century yeah, modern included. Yeah. yeah, I can remember even at the height of when I was a punk feeling slightly pressured by the rules. I remember talking to another friend and saying, like, why is it I can have big green spikes on my head, but it wouldn't be cool if I grew them in a beard? Like, right. And it was like, well, because facial hair was not cool for punks. And it was like, but why is that a fact? And, you know, just the idea that, like, there's always rules even to nonconformity. Absolutely. I was a hippie in college, and I remember one time um, getting this sort of tinted rose water that I could use to (laughs) put on my cheeks and my lips and was sort of secretly putting it on. And one of my friends caught me, and she's like, are you wearing makeup? (laughs) And I was so ashamed. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) You decided to change your name to Seth around that time. Yeah, that was part of a whole rebrand. Branding. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the truth. Is that well? How much yeah. of you is manufactured then? Because I really yeah. see branding as manufactured meaning, and I yeah. think that you're sort of the opposite of that in a lot well, of ways. It's funny. We're very concerned with authenticity in the culture, and it's like you can fake things until they're authentic. It's like there's some core of reality that who you are. You can't seem to change it. It's something you're born with, or nature or nurture. I'm not sure, but you can certainly layer stuff on top of that. And even just as superficial as like what kind of clothes you wear. I have a giant fur coat that I wear. And when I first bought it, and because, of course, I love Edward Gorey with his giant fur coat. When I first bought it, I remember the first day I went out with it, I was like, this is too much. And I was very um, socially conscious. But, you know, after about a week, it was like I didn't notice I was wearing a giant fur coat anymore. Only the other people notice. And I think once you just have enough confidence that, like, it's about what you want to do, this was the great thing of the punk movement. It gave me the confidence to say, what do you want? And then do it. I mean, how you dress isn't really that important, except that it is an extension of, like, everything that you're interested in. Well, it's a projection of how you want people to perceive you. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, I want to do what I want to do. And so you negotiate how to do it in the world. You've said you chose the name Seth because you were looking for a pretentious, scary name. Mm -hmm. And I believe you also invented a last name what was it? Well, no one will ever know that name. Oh. Although I do have one of my friends knows it, and he does hold it over my head sometimes. But really? Boy, it's, it's bad. Really? Oh, yeah. It's, it's stupider than Seth, believe me. <laughs> You've also said I'd show you my tattoo before you tell anybody your last name. So. Yes. And I wouldn't discuss the tattoo either. <laughs> no. I hate tattooing, and yet I have a tattoo. Uh, well, can you at least give us a description of it and tell us where it is? No, it's just small, a little tattoo on my shoulder. When I was a little punk, you know, it was like actually before the tattooing trend really got going. And I remember I was— I was very subversive back then. It was. You had to go into a place that was scary. Illegal. And, and, yeah, yeah. And there were biker-type guys in there. And, you know, they weren't that uh, sympathetic towards little punk rockers. So you were a little nervous about it. And so it's a little tattoo on your shoulder of what? Of something that will be forgotten. Oh. I've thought of covering it up and getting something, like, uh, less stupid. But I think it's, like, it's a good reminder. I I see it every once in a while, and it takes me back. Fair enough. 
You attended the Ontario College of Art. Mm-hmm. You've said, I entered school a hick, small-town boy who wanted mm-hmm. to draw superhero comics. Absolutely. Did you have any other art school aspirations, or were you that, that was it? You knew? That was pretty well it. I mean, I went to art school because I didn't know what to do after school. I knew that I wasn't ready to just go to New York City and show up at Marvel Comics and show them a portfolio. My artwork, in retrospect, wasn't very suitable to that kind of thing. In fact, when I went to art school, I'm jumping the gun here, but I remember we had an assignment once to draw a party scene in one of my illustration classes or something, and I put my drawing up on the board, which I thought was a very realistic drawing, and somebody in the class during the critique said, that's a really smart idea to have done it as a cartoon. And I thought to myself it's a cartoon. And then I looked at it and I realized, yeah, I'm drawing in a complete cartoon style that I thought of as realism. And it wasn't even really that close to like the superhero comic style because it was much cartoonier. Um, So more old school. Yeah. It was probably more relatable to like, you know, New Yorker cartoons, although without the finish or polish. You dropped out of college in your third year. Mm -hmm. You stated that you were more interested in taking drugs and screwing up. And you go on to detail how your schoolwork declined terribly whenever Mm -hmm. you did it. And you no longer had any idea what you were going to do art-wise. This really surprised me, given how disciplined you are today. When did that work ethic change? Well, it changed when I decided to come back from that. It's interesting that, like, when I was in art school, I think I went through a very short period of disillusionment. So I wanted to be a cartoonist. I quickly saw by the second year of art school that there was really nothing in art school that was going to teach me that. And I also felt out of touch with the other kinds of art they were teaching. I think I was a little too young to fully understand the sophistication of some of the stuff they were trying to teach me. I remember in design class, for example, I literally just couldn't understand what they were teaching. I felt they might as well have been teaching magic. What were they teaching you at that point that you didn't well, understand? Well, they were remember? trying to show you what a good design was and what a bad design was. Uh-huh. As simple as that. And I was That's like, not simple. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I was looking at them and I was like, I just don't have any criteria to make a judgment call. They'd say, this is the good one. And I'd be like, well, I don't know why. What I was connected to, what was going on outside of school. It was okay. at this point, it was just drugs and going to nightclubs. But the thing was, okay, so I got out of art school. I I quit. I dropped out in third year. Then I didn't think about art for about a year. And here I am. I haven't drawn anything in a year. I don't have any interest in drawing. Clearly, this was just a pipe dream. You got to do the work if it's going to happen. And I wasn't doing it. I'm not going to be a cartoonist. I thought I'd always planned this for the last, you know, since I was 10 years old or whatever, and always believed it 100%. And I thought it's not going to happen. And then uh, around that time, I discovered underground comics and alternative comics. And that kind of turned the door of what I was thinking. And I started to produce a portfolio of that kind of work. That actually began the process of me heading back into being an actual artist. So the underground cartoonists opened you up to the notion that comics could be art. Yeah, it was a big revelation. It's funny. I think the thing was I felt like I had no other skills as an artist, I didn't really, I wasn't very sophisticated in my thinking at this point. So it wasn't like I thought, well, maybe I'll be a sculptor. It was like comics or nothing. And the comics had kind of fizzled for me. But when I discovered uh, first the work of Robert Crumb, and then second, the work of the Hernandez brothers, those two works, first Crumb showing me that comics could pretty well be anything you want. And then the Hernandez brothers being just a couple years older than me, I was like, this is speaking directly to me and my generation. It was all about punk rockers in there. It was influenced by the cartoonists I grew up with, like uh, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, and yet there was this totally contemporary hip vibe to it. I was Suddenly, I was excited. When did you discover Art Spiegelman? It would probably be, I bet you I discovered just about everybody in the next year. <laughs> I started reading Raw pretty quickly, and at that point, uh, Mouse was being serialized in Raw, I even wrote Art a letter, I think, within a year. I still have the reply. What did you write him, and what did he write back? Well, I wrote him probably a stupid letter that I don't don't know what was in the letter, thank God. Maybe he has it. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I'm sure Art got a lot of letters. But I think I basically told him that I probably piled on the high praise, probably said, you know, it was like reading Albert Camus or something, you know, something high. But the truth was I just told him how, how affecting it was to me and how I was a young cartoonist who wanted to do comics. And he wrote back basically, you know, a very kind, polite letter, the kind of letter I've written a few times now, which is just sort of straight encouragement. It doesn't matter. You know, you know when people are that young, they, and I didn't send him any work, thank God. But even when people send you their work, even if it's terrible, 
that is no way to judge whether they're going to be good or not. Because Absolutely. a lot of people who do terrible work when they're 21 are geniuses at 35. So just encourage them. In the mid-1980s, you were brought on to draw the dystopian Art Deco comic series, Mr. X, written by Paul Ravoche. Actually, no, it was written by Dean Motter. Dean Paul Motter. Paul was the original artist who designed the whole series. Okay. I'm sorry yeah. about that. Oh, no. How did you get the commission? There was kind of a complicated history to the early issues of that comic, but the Hernandez brothers actually drew it just before me. And uh, they'd had some kind of dispute with the publisher, and they left. Now, my heroes at that point were the Hernandez brothers, and they were at the top of their early careers. And I was coming on really early in my career, and my work was very slipshod at this point. I mean, I came in there. I was showing them some work. They needed an artist for Mr. X. They were like, do you want to give it a try? And I was like, yes. And it was good that I did it. I mean, I can't look at those comic books anymore. They're so early in my career. And every issue is like I look at them, if I were to look at them, would be a huge jump in what I was learning and a huge jump back each one too, where you learn something, you forget something. But it was a good apprenticeship period for me. You eventually hated working on the series from what I understand. Yeah. And you found it so uninspiring. I believe that you were actually fired. I was fired, although I don't think it was for my lack of inspiration. I think it was fired because me and the publisher went from being quite chummy to being like kind of like enemies by the end. <laughs> I feel bad about it now because I think uh, the publisher, Bill Marks, he was actually, he treated me really well up until a certain point where our uh, personalities sort of butted heads. And then I'm not sure whose fault it was. That's probably you know, both. Yes, I think so. We were both very aggressive in what we were doing. But anyhow, I was losing patience with working on the book anyway. Um, I knew when I started working there that I wanted to make my own comics, but I wouldn't have really known exactly what they were. I was really playing around at the beginning, trying to figure out who I was. Even my drawing style, I didn't know when I began that comic. It was working on that comic, I think, that sort of solidified the direction I went, because that comic was all about early 20th century design. So I went in there, and then I started paying a lot of attention to the Bauhaus, started looking at, you know, the Art Deco illustrations of the 20s and 30s, uh, the whole world of the international style, all that stuff. And I think that really expanded my horizons and my drawing style became quite linear and simple. But during that same period, I was also starting to read and really like understand what was good that was going on in underground comics. Then I was reading Harvey Picar, I was looking at Linda Berry, Art Spiegelman, blah, blah, blah. By the time I got to like where I'd done six or seven issues, I felt like that's not the kind of comics I wanted to do because they had a certain kind of noirish sci-fi adventure thing. They were charming, but ultimately I wanted to do something with more meat on the bones. You know, quitting or being fired, whichever it was, that was the right timing. So at this point, were you then consciously aware that you wanted to create comics differently than had ever been done before? No, that would be overstating it. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to make comics in league with the ambitions of the other cartoonists I was recognizing appearing on the scene. The younger cartoonists coming up at that point, we all grew up in the late 60s and 70s. We grew up with a mishmash of like pop culture stuff, Mad Magazine, superhero comics, whatever, the undergrounds. But I think that generation uh, that I'm part of now people like Dan Klaus or Peter Bagg or Chester Brown. I think we all thought we want to do adult comics. And I think as time went on, a kind of generalized aesthetic started to form. And I think really the only aesthetic that you could say was common was that there was a literary ambition to it, to try and make something that was, um, like the undergrounds were very interesting, but they were mostly art as shock value. Like, here's comic books meant for kids. Here's we're going to throw in a lot of sex and drugs, and it's going to, like, people are going to say, what? These are comic books. But I think the big thing was, can you make a long comic story? And um, can you write it with more ambitions than just the usual comic book? How did you first meet Chris Oliveros, the publisher of Drawn and Quarterly? Yeah, Drawn and Quarterly was literally, like, one magazine. Uh, I think they had one magazine published when I met... Chris Oliveros. He'd started this magazine called Drawn and Quarterly, which is a terrible title. Oh, I love <laughs> it. I actually love that title. It's a, great, it's a great title if you ever put out a quarterly magazine, but I don't think that magazine even came out once quarterly. But anyhow, I met Chris very early on. He just started publishing, 
And I was just putting together the first issue of my comic, Palookaville. This was very shortly after the Mr. X stuff. We met at a, I think at a little comic convention in Toronto. And I was thinking of shopping it to the two major underground cartooning publishing companies then, which would have been Fantagraphics and Kitchen Sink Press. And they'd been around for a while, and they were they published the people I respected. But I, I ran into Chris, and he was just really smart and really great. And I said, I'm working on a comic. And he's like, would you be interested in if I published it? And he knew my work a little bit. And something just made me think like it was a smart move rather than go – in retrospect, I don't know why. I mean, I probably should have gone to Fantagraphics, but it was the right answer, trusting Chris. And we became friends, and I felt like those early 10 years of Drawn and Quarterly were like definitely like being part of some kind of – artistic movement. Absolutely. The Village Voice eloquently describes Palookaville this way. Palookaville tells the story of what the past was and its ripe possibilities that were never borne out. And Seth, I want to talk with you a bit about memory. Mm-hmm. I already mentioned Luke Chamberlain's wonderful documentary, Seth's Dominion. In that movie, you say this, memory is a blueprint of sensation you have in your brain. And this blueprint has to be studied when you go back to look at it. And much like composing a panel, it's like you're in the center of that blueprint. Seth, how much can you trust memory? I don't think you can trust memory at all, to be perfectly honest. I have, I'm dubious of every memory I have. Although when talking to my wife about this recently, she was like, well, maybe you should trust some of them. I mean, there is obvious memory. But the truth is, I don't think memories are recordings. They are more like some complicated connection of several things that are happening at the same time. I think we tend to think of them as visual memories. We think of like, oh, I remember being at the lake and you see the lake. But I think that obviously they're like, it's at least 50% emotional memory as well, connected with a bunch of other stuff too. It's a very complex thing and it's like, Sometimes they're rich and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're little. Sometimes they're quite expansive. But over time, I think as you spend time with memory, if you think about it a lot, you recognize that, A, uh, it's easily pretty inaccurate. Um, You encounter people who you talk to about your past together and you find out you've got the facts wrong or that complete things happen that you don't remember. They're like, uh, remember that trip we took, you and me in the car? And they're like, you mean you, me, and Sally and Frank? And I'm like, what? They were there too? It's like there's a million things like that. But I do think that as a register, I'm not interested in accuracy. That's not what I'm interested in in memory. It's not that whether or not the facts are correct. The point is why are they important to you? Why do you keep returning to the same memories? Why are you building little narratives out of them that you keep reshaping, reshuffling? That little narrative I told you about my mother and I and the little bubble world we lived in is a contemporary idea. Now, if you'd asked me at 25 about those experiences, that would not be what I would talk about, and I wouldn't even have been able to articulate that. Somewhere over the last 20 years, I've refined those ideas. I, I was thinking about this the other day. Maybe memory is an art form in itself. Mm. Maybe it's like there's somebody who's like the best rememberer in the planet, but nobody knows it because you can't compare them. There seems to be like a skill or a talent or, or perhaps even something that you've refined over time of why you're doing this with your memories. What are you doing with them? Why are you shaping them in this way? I think that the very process of thinking about memory is probably what's more interesting to me than the idea of the memories themselves. The word nostalgia or nostalgic Mm -hmm. is sometimes Mm -hmm. used to refer to your work, and you've said this about nostalgia. Nostalgia implies a kind of hallmark card sentiment, that there's a golden past that you're yearning for. And there's lots of yearning in my work, but I don't think of it being that kind of nostalgia. How would you describe it? Yeah, it's funny. Nostalgia has got a totally pejorative quality nowadays. It does. It's like the word interesting. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. I'm not sure that nostalgia had that same meaning back in 1930 or 1870, whatever. But right now, because we've been sold so much nostalgia and that it's a commodity constantly being sold, that it's cheap and it feels um, superficial, it feels um, inauthentic, and it feels uh, kind of, yeah, Hallmark card soppy. I'm nostalgic for the past. We long for what we don't have. And so the past is gone and it disappears every day. And When I think back to, like, say, the 1970s, I don't think to myself I'd love to return to the 1970s. 
But I do think there was a kind of a texture to the experience of being alive in that time that gets inside you, and that texture becomes meaningful in some way, and it's very easy for you to be um, moved by things that push the buttons of this old experience. Um, there's a reason why we, like, you know, we get uh, connected to objects, and I think it's because they're part of another time. I do feel deep emotion about the idea of the, the past, but I certainly don't have any illusions about it. Palookaville really put you on the map. Um, you, alongside with Chester Brown and Joe Matt, as you've mentioned, became known as the Toronto Three. Mm-hmm. And you became famous for your semi-autobiographical comics, which you all frequently crossed over into each other's. It sort of reminds me of mm-hmm. the Chicago PD, Law & Order mashups. <laughs> what drew you toward autobiography? Well, I think it was because we all came from that world of reading like Marvel comics or DC comics or whatever and we all wanted to get away from that and we wanted to separate ourselves from it and the most obvious thing to get away from that was real life to try and write the thing you knew best and that was your own life and I think there were a couple of really strong examples going on right then Harvey Pekar and Linda Berry again even though Linda was not writing autobiography I've since learned I mean she just made that stuff up but it rang Felt like it, it rang like autobiography. <laughs> Especially yeah, if exactly. you were reading it as a woman of the same age. Yeah, yeah. And she was really tapping into like real life experience. And I think that has a powerful shift is what happened to our whole generation is that move to try and write about real life. Because comics have very little of that. Even in the past when people tried to write about real events, they tended to be like, you know, like a biography comic of JFK or something. So it wasn't really about day-to-day life wasn't trying to capture the mundane quality of life. For me, at least, that was what interested me the most. Your book, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken, collects Palookaville issues four through nine, and it was published, again, by Drawn and Quarterly. Um, And the book documents your hunt for the lost New Yorker cartoonist Jack Kalo Calloway as the Encyclopedia of Comic Books surmised... Astute readers deduced that Kalo never existed, that Seth created the drawings himself, and that much of the main story was elaborate fiction presented as autobiography. However, the story is so convincing that many readers were surprised that it was actually not true. The narrative borrows heavily from Seth's own life, including his family and friends, but it is not as autobiographical. Seth, were you surprised that so many readers were surprised to learn that Kalo was not real? Well, it's hard for me to remember exactly what I felt then. But, <laughs> but, of course. Yeah. But now, <laughs> After what we just yeah. talked about. <laughs> but now, it's funny, I still encounter people who are like, oh, I just found out that wasn't true. And um, it reminds me that I wasn't trying to create a hoax. The interesting thing was I didn't really care if people knew it was true or not, but I assumed they would believe me. Firstly, because I'd been doing straight autobiography before that, And secondly, it was a pre-internet era where you couldn't just look things up. So I did encounter like maybe one person who went to the trouble back then to go to the library to find the specific issue of The New Yorker that Kalo was supposed to be in and then say he wasn't in there. I found the page that you've reproduced, but you've put a fake cartoon there. Scandal. Yep. (laughs) I was impressed that somebody had the energy. Nowadays, you'd just Google it up and be like, oh, it's not true. That's a great story, a fictional story with a touch of of autobiographical information that's not autobiographical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The funny thing was, it wasn't meant to be a hoax, like I say. What it was meant was... And the first few comics I did that were autobiographical, I, when I finished them and saw them in print, I thought there's something wrong with them. They're, they're fine, but they felt like anecdotes. And I thought, I want to try and use the comics medium to tell smaller things. And then I, I was very interested in The New Yorker at that point and studying all the old cartoonists. And I thought, I'm looking around for information. I thought I should just make up an artist. That'll give me like a framework to build a story on with a lot of little stuff. And um, if I use myself, though, it'll make it more convincing. People will just, they won't, like, think of it as a fiction piece. They'll just think it's real. And that will allow them to invest in it in a different way. And didn't your mother come up with the line, it's a good life if you don't weaken? Or not come up with it. Didn't she say that to you as you were growing up? Always, yeah. Actually, she said it's a great life if you don't weaken. But for some reason at that point, I just wasn't willing to invest that much belief in it. (laughs) (laughs) Make it a little bit more attainable? Yeah, I took it down a notch. (laughs) You said this about the genre of comics. 
There's something very lonely about the stillness of a comic book page, that austere stacked grid of boxes, the little people trapped in time. I actually think it is better suited for portraying the inner life of a person than the sort of big blown world of fantasy. Was that what you were trying to begin mm-hmm. to experiment with? It with? was. It's a good life if you don't weaken. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have known exactly what I was thinking when I started it as well as I do now, but I do know that, like, comics back then, and this is another big change in the world, the one thing they said about comic books when I was growing up is it was the one place where you could tell fantasy convincingly because films couldn't do it. They didn't. The special effects were too primitive, it was too expensive, whatever. But now that idea has been exploded. But the bigger thing was I thought... I don't really think that's true. I mean, sure, they do an effective job of showing Superman flying around, but the comics medium itself, which is so small and intimate, is actually a very good medium for having an interior kind of experience because you can really only experience the comic storytelling in your head. You can't really read a comic book aloud. It's always weird. You know, you're like uh, in panel one, this guy says this, and then this person says this. It only really works when you read it, and it's only in your brain that it comes together. And there's something about that interior experience that works very well for a kind of um, direct communication from a character to a reader. We talked about Impressionism before. That was actually something that I borrowed, in quotes, (laughs) from you. Uh, You've equated cartooning to what the Impressionist painters were doing in art, that you're not aiming for the detail so much as the overall feeling. Exactly. How is this best created? How much do you have to decide to leave out in order to still be able to effectively tell the story? Well, it's always a negotiation with anything. I mean, part of it is simply just making the comics and you learn, like, how to best transmit a certain kind of um, experience to the reader. But a lot of it is about creating, I think, for me, I'm working with very simple forms, and it's like there's a kind of symbolism in the way you draw and how you arrange things on the page that is, it's got a little bit of magic to it that is hard to put down in words, but a lot of it is, is you're stimulating other people's experience and memory. It's like when I draw a picture of a house, it is a house, of course, but it's a simplified thing. You can't really capture, like, the detail of real-life experience in the drawing. Everyone will plug in their own emotions into these drawings. They're very much like the same way that if I write R-E-D for red, you will picture the color red in your brain, And a drawing of a house or a person walking down the street that's simplified will bring forward those same richer emotions, experiences. I mean, I can't draw a dirty sink with any kind of convincing vermicillitude. Why? Because the drawings are too simple. It's like, and if you were to increase the drawing where you see comics where they're super rendered, somehow or other that kills it. It's like suddenly the drawings stop dead. There's like kind of a vibrancy and a language of comics that depends, at least in my opinion, on a kind of simplicity of line. Much like Japanese drawings, you know, it's like those, there's a certain communication between the hand and the reader that is essential. You've said that there's something about the very simple, understated nature of how comics are created with little bubbles that Mm -hmm. form in your brain. How does that change when comics are turned into movies? Different medium. The magic of the comic disappears the minute you take it away from that printed form. Or, I suppose, it can be on the Internet. But when it's flat and unmoving, the minute you add anything to it, somehow it starts to fall apart. A little bit of sound, even just like a hand moving. see this occasionally. Somebody put a little bit of movement in there. Something about that seems to kill it. Um, But I do love, you know, I like the cartoons they made of my work in the documentary. I I was very impressed with them. But, of course, those weren't comics. In the glossary section of It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken, you state this about Marvel Comics. Back in the 1960s, it was a wonderfully fun line of comic books, especially the Kirby and Ditko stuff. Now it's a hateful media conglomerate that popularizes bad drawing. You wrote this in 1996. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel this way? It's funny, you know, I was going to say, I wonder what I wrote. (laughs) And um, I would have been particularly aggressive towards those comics at that point because that's where I was really trying to put that behind me fully. But you know what? I think maybe I do still agree with that. I still certainly agree with the first part that Marvel Comics in the 1960s was a great comic book company. And I still own a lot of those comics and I look at them frequently and they are very warm and funny and they're full of a kind of like boys club uh, fun to them that, you know, really it's exciting. 
I do. I don't know if I think they're a hateful media conglomerate anymore because maybe I've just sort of lost the passion to hate media conglomerates. <laughs> <laughs> they're just another one. Well, you know, I have to ask you, yeah. what did you think of the 23 film arc of the recent Avengers series? Well, I haven't seen the last couple of them. So you haven't seen Endgame or Infinity War? No, I've seen the, uh, several of the movies over the years on airplanes. That's where I always watch them as a guilty pleasure because um, that's somewhere I can sit down and watch, not really pay a lot of attention. And I have been impressed with what Marvel has done with those films because I think they've done a very interesting thing, which I would have thought could never happen, and that they built them like one by one into a a big sequence and set things up. It's the kind of thing that comic book fans, like, you know, really nerdy comic book fans always said, like, well, you got to do it this way. You can't just have the Avengers. First, you got to do Thor. You got to, you know, set it up. And I'm like, they actually did that. And it paid off. And it's turned into a hugely successful thing. And I must admit, I think those films have some charm. I la They have humor in them, which is why I don't really, I've never liked any of the other superhero films before. They were always so boringly serious. Yeah, I like the tongue-in-cheek nature of mm -hmm. some of the characters and quite a lot of the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. So I'm no expert on it, but I, I think they work. You've said that for some time you have felt a connection between comics and poetry and go on to declare that there is an obvious connection to anyone who has ever sat down and tried to write a comic strip. I believe that this idea first occurred to you in the late 80s when you were studying Charles Schultz's peanut strips, and suddenly it seems so clear that his four-panel setup was just like reading a haiku. It's pretty true, and I think that idea has gone on to become completely a cliché. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'd like to think I invented that idea, but I don't know. Maybe I picked it up from somewhere. But it's true. I mean, I was in my sketchbooks just recently, I was drawing some haikus as comic strips. There is a pattern to them that is completely comparable to how you set up a straightforward four-panel comic strip. Well, I think there's something very single-minded and still about haiku. Yes. And I think that there's that same depth of quality in your work as well. Well, that's very kind. I do know that I think poetry is similar to comics because, for one thing, there's a lot of compression in the language. And comics are very much about compressing language and how to tell what you're telling without, you know, being overly verbose. And it's also about a certain kind of layering of imagery. Like, poets make images. They stack images on top of each other, much in the way you construct a comic story. Let's talk about your considerable Peanuts work. Mm -hmm. You spent more than a decade working on what has been dubbed the most ambitious publishing project in the history of the American comic strip, Fantagraphic's 26-volume collection of Charles Schultz's The Complete Peanuts. Uh, you've said that each volume would take you about a month to do, and while you were doing it, you were producing them at a rate of about two per year. Yeah. You got the 18,000 strips that were created over 50 years into the books and completed the series about two years ago. You won an Eisner for publication design. The project won a number of other Eisners and a Harvey Award. Are you as comfortable as a designer as you are a cartoonist? Increasingly. Not always. I mean, I think I've grown into the role. I think that initially I was only thinking about design in the bigger sense because I was thinking of how to control my own work and how to present it and and how important it was becoming with comics as being published as books that you wanted to really know what you were doing. But increasingly, as I, I've become very, very interested in design, I love designing books. Specifically. Well, you've designed all of your own books, yeah. the 26 yeah. books of the Peanuts yeah. series. Yeah, I've actually designed a lot of books by this point. Yeah. And I feel, very, I feel pretty comfortable with it. But, of course, it's important that you be interested in what you're designing. I'm not sure I'd be such a great designer on certain projects because I do tend to be a bit of a dictator. I like it to be my way. And that was one of the great powers of working on the Peanuts book is that Literally, they just let me do what I want with that series, which kind of blows my mind because it was a huge media company with millions of dollars, billions of dollars, and they let me get away for like 12 years designing those books exactly as I liked uh, with, I don't even think, a single like um, request to change anything. It so. is pretty perfect, I have to say, well, as the owner you. of several. I want to discuss Clyde fans. Mm -hmm. uh, the saga tells the story of two brothers in the electric fan business who live at the dawn of the age of the air conditioner. It began as a serial in Palookaville. Did this story reflect your feelings on the modern world at all? 
Well, mostly I think it was actually a metaphor for comics when I first started it because here were two guys who were um, in the field of electric fans and they had not been paying attention to the changes of the world and now they were like on the downturn and heading towards oblivion. And that's pretty much what a cartoonist felt like in 1998, whatever. Comics legitimately felt like they were over at that point. It's funny because when I was a teenager and wanted to become a cartoonist, they seemed I thought they were a mass medium, but I didn't realize they were heading out. And by the time like the 90s came along and I was working as a cartoonist, it was entirely an art medium, and that looked like it was like dying too. The publishers were starting to go out of business. Uh, that really seemed the end. Strangely, I don't know what happened exactly, but within the next few years, the graphic novel kind of caught on and the comics industry was saved. I'm surprised to hear you use those words, graphic novel. I know oh, I you know. hate yeah. that term. I've you find it pretentious and horrible. Oh, you've come to terms with <laughs> I it. I had to. Oh, had it's to. official. <laughs> <laughs> no, I gave up. It's funny. It's interesting. Yeah, you're right. I hated the term. I thought it was a terribly pretentious, stupid word or term. But the thing is, you know, at some point, it made my life easier because real people know what a graphic novel is. In my early days when I was a cartoonist, people say, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, I'm a cartoonist. And they'd say, oh, so, you, so you'd make cartoons, animated cartoons. I'd be, no, no, no. I mean, like, I'm a comic book artist. And then they'd say, oh, so what, what superheroes do you draw? And I'd be, no, no, not that stuff. And they'd say, so you're in the newspaper? It's like, once you've had this conversation a few times. <laughs> I know. So I now, know. now I just say, people say, what do you do for a living? And I say, oh, I do graphic novels. And, you know, everybody knows what a graphic novel is now. So well, speaking of, speaking of graphic novels, yeah. Drawn and Quarterly recently just collected all of Clyde fans into a final edition mm-hmm. in a beautiful hardbound slipcase. You designed two covers based on the vacuum cleaner's supply boxes. You figured it would take about five years to complete the saga, and it took 20. Yeah, it did. Um, given your notions of the past, how do you regard this ending? Um, Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, it's not as meaningful to me as uh, people expect. When I was working on the final, you know, I was happy to be done. And when I was working on the final design of the book, my production uh, artist at D&Q, Tracy, she kept saying things to me like, um, don't you worry, we're going to make your life's work, we're going to take good care of it. And and I was thinking, I'm, you know, I'm not as connected to this as you think. Oh, so precious. <laughs> I took it out and I gingerly opened the cover and just looking at well, it and feeling it's such a momentous, Well, it was good when it was, it was good when it was moment. Done. I was happy. I mean, like... There have been three or four moments it was done. So there was the moment I finally finished the story. So people were like, how do you feel? Because I published that in Palookaville, the final chapter. And people were like, how do you feel that it's done? And I was like, well, it's not really done. I still have to, you know, make the book. And so to make the book, I had to spend like several months fixing everything up, then doing all the design work. And then that was done. And then we, you know, proofs, you go through all that. And then finally there was a point where I was like, it's done. I will never have to draw these characters again or have anything to do with them. It felt good because when you've got a 20-year-long project you're working on, there comes a point where you feel um, this has gone on way too long. And you, you're afraid you're going to die before it finishes, or you're afraid you'll never finish it, that you'll just, you know, wimp out at some point. And sort say, of like, like the Die Hard movies. Yes. <laughs> and ultimately, I was just like, I made it to the end. I'm done. It's career-defining for me, but in a strange way, I've been moving on for years ready to do the next book. But Abe and Simon are two brothers that you've said are two sides of yourself. They are. So what does it mean when they're no longer continuing to live? Well, you know, the funny thing is, this is again complicated because it's a 20-year process. And in that 20 years, I would come back and forth with them, where I would, you know, be with them for a couple of months and then go away and work on other things and come back. I think it became more abstract over time. I knew where they, I knew they were based on me, and I'd figured that out long ago. But in some sense, they'd become more abstracted. They'd become characters in a book. And even though I can look at them now and see clearly exactly what life experience I'm drawing on for every aspect of them, I probably don't feel like Charles Schultz felt when he when he was you know with that last strip he wrote, which is a heartbreaker. I'm just getting goosebumps now, <laughs> even thinking about it. Well, it is a magnificent magnificent accomplishment. Oh, well, thank you. And and gorgeously, gorgeously made. I have a few last questions for sure, you, Seth. Sure. As I mentioned in my introduction, my dear friend Chip Kidd was instrumental in making this interview happen. And I asked him if he could, 
what one question should I ask you? Okay. So this is from Chip. Your work is so rooted in the genteel cartoon aesthetics of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. If somehow you could live and work back then instead of now, would you choose that? No. Although it's funny, there's a moment's hesitation and temptation only because there is a kind of, when we were talking about those textures of the past, there is something in that period that is so appealing that I would like to at least go back and visit. Mm. The idea of just to walk around New York, for example, in that period, to hit the bars that were there, to, to just walk in the street and see everybody dressed like that, a world of, like, concrete and wood and wool and, you know, all the things that, you know, our world is very different from that world. But part of the reason that world is so beautiful is that it's gone. Mm. And when you wander around and you see, like, some old building somewhere, some ghost image of the past, there's something more poignant about that than the real past. And the truth is, I probably, I, I enjoy the melancholy more than I would enjoy the reality. Well, I think that um, Dr. Strange got that time stone back from Thanos <laughs> and um, gave it back to the Ancient One, so you might be able to snag it and go back in time <laughs> well, for maybe, a bit. Maybe I should talk some of my Hollywood contacts. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to Chip, I also asked the legendary cartoonist and writer Chris Ware what he might ask you. So my last three questions are from him, and they're short. Okay. First, is there any emotion that comics is not capable of expressing or transmuting? Hmm. I mean, I'm not, I think comics is capable of any emotions. I do think I'm not. Mm. I think it would be very hard for me to convincingly portray violence or maybe even convincing sex. Those are very complex emotions and situations that would be very hard to transmit through the way I work. It's hard to say. You know, I do think comics is very effective for a lot of the subtler emotions. And so as I think that through, you know, I'm not really too sure what the answer would be. I'd have to give that more thought. I have such confidence in the idea that comics is a subtle medium that I've actually spent more time arguing for it than thinking about what it might not be up for. Well, I have to come back on the show and we'll have another yeah. discussion about it. Or maybe you and Chris <laughs> yeah. can come together. Yeah, well, I'd be curious what Chris says about that. Second question from mm -hmm. Chris. What is the governing, overriding feeling of life itself? For me, and I suspect this might be true for lots of people, it is that complex dichotomy between inside and outside. That everything is happening outside, or it appears to be, even though everything outside is actually just in your brain. And it is that process of trying to interpret everything that is happening. Everything's a symbol. As we're sitting here talking, you're a symbol. Your expressions, your words, the colors in the room, all of it's open to interpretation. And all of it is like this strange system where we're trying to figure out what everything means. And it is a very, um, it's a lonely experience to be inside a human body and not really connect with other people. But it is, I think, for me, especially while traveling, it always brings us up how strangely abstract everything outside of you is and how you're trying to somehow make sense of it, especially through your work. Finally, the last question from Chris Ware. Do you believe in God? Increasingly, I wonder. I would have said when I was younger that I did not believe in God, and I would have thought of myself as pretty much of a materialist, but I don't think that's true any longer. What's changed? What's changed is that this world, as we were just talking about, is strange, and it doesn't feel real to me. I think that there is a complicated layers of reality going on, mystic experience, whatever, anything's possible. So when you start talking about, say, the afterlife, it initially starts out as sounding pretty ridiculous. Why would there be an afterlife? Especially, you know, I don't worry about an afterlife for a cockroach after I step on it. But this experience we're living in seems rich and complicated, again, complicated, um, very layered, and it doesn't feel like surely all of this isn't for nothing. This whole struggle, this complicated um, relationship you seem to have with reality feels like um, it's just a waste if there's nothing else going on beyond this. There's a great line in the film Metropolitan by Whit Stillman that I always quote, where one of the characters says, you know there's a God because you know someone's listening to your thoughts. And I thought, that line stuck with me. I certainly don't feel like I'm having a conversation in my head with no one. 
Now, what does God mean? That I'm not sure I have a simple answer for. Seth, thank you so much for creating such meaningful and profound work. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Well, thank you. It has been an absolute honor to talk to you. Uh, You're very kind. You can find out more about Seth and see some of his drawings in bookstores and at drawnandquarterly.com. All of his books are extraordinary. You must buy his new book, Clyde Fans, which is a collection of his strips and is a magnum opus. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie dash millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or just link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com and Sonos.